Hey, really good friends. This podcast contains adult content and language. Listen with care. Hello. Hello and welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femblow. Hey, how yo, are you? Yo, what's going on? Mm. No? Should we take that back? I know. Okay. Take, take uh, that again. Okay. All right. Ready? And <laughs> hey, how's it going? Hey. No, how are you? I wanted to ask you first this time. Oh, uh, sorry. Go for it. <clears throat> how are you? I'm so good. Wow. We're really getting good at this podcast thing. We are. We are quite a few weeks into it. You could tell we've got the routine down. Mm-hmm. I would say <laughs> almost professionals. Definitely. I mm-hmm. don't know what it takes to be a podcast professional, but I would say we have all of the qualifications. I would say we're there. Yeah. Yeah. It's our agree? podcast and we can make the rules. And it exists. So at that point, we're yeah. professional. We haven't been invited to any like uh, podcasting events, if that's a thing. I don't know. Invite us your podcasting event. Maybe that your means podcast we're professional. parties. Yeah, I know that you're having them. Mm-hmm. I we know that they're out there, and, and we're just we feel a, little a little bit, bit hurt. left out. We're a little hurt. We are. Yeah, we are, especially considering we've been we've been publishing for two months now. Mm-hmm. So it's about time. Chop chop. So get you on can it. send Rachel Craig's invitation to her personal home address at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please do. I will definitely put out that private information. Mm-hmm. Just send us an email and it's it's yep. yours it's all well yours. why don't we just live tweet it out we'll live tweet your address Sounds your good. social security credit card number perfect i will i will dox myself yeah <laughs> let's just get ahead of the curve exactly you know what i know once we get really big which you know what we're big already don't worry oh but once no, we to- get yep. once we that's what I meant. Once we get really big, like mega stars, mm-hmm. um, I just know it's bound to happen because everybody's really, yeah, because they're just, everybody's itching to find out who I am. Mm-hmm. And so I may as well just do it first. But you know, it doesn't take too much because as you know, I um, did pretty willingly fall for a, <laughs> yeah, a um, fishing scam. scam. <laughs> a phone <laughs> scam. Um, yeah. I'm just your average everyday 85 year old woman. Um yeah who panicked and fell for a phone scam. Although I feel like maybe you would also fall for the scam. I'm going to tell myself that to feel a little better, but. Okay. I don't agree. Okay. Are we in a fight? I don't think we're in a fight. Let's fight. Well, I guess you want to be in a fight. Okay. (laughs) I I think that you are a global, global little person. Okay. Hey, now. (laughs) Hey, now. (laughs) I don't like fighting with you. I'm sorry. Let's wake up. Okay. I don't like it. Are you up to anything gay recently? Um, no, I wish. No, Hmm. I'm not. I don't think it's been like a little cold and rainy here, like unseasonally cold and rainy. And so it's just like not fun gay weather, you know, (laughs) doesn't make me want to do things. It doesn't make you want to do anything. Yeah. So no, I've been thinking a lot about rewatching the Pride and Prejudice series though, mm. and that feels like a little queer to me. So yeah, absolutely. So that you know, okay. yeah, Jane Austen just feels speaks to me queer. in that way. Yeah, yeah. So maybe that. How about you? <laughs> How about yourself? No, no, I'm not either. No, no, nothing. What no. a shame. Yeah, it's been like gayless recently over here. I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry to hear that. I think maybe you're not looking in the right places. Have you ever considered? I haven't, but I will now. And I really appreciate that. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. You know, we are almost in May, which Mm -hmm. means we're almost in June, which is Pride Month. Oh, correction. The school that I work is having Pride Week this week, which Mm. um, I suppose is because schools like colleges don't happen in June. Oh, yeah, yeah. So so that's something that's been going on. That is gay. That's been really really fun and exciting. Yes, there's little rainbow flags everywhere. Little pride flags. Um, It's very, it's quite beautiful. And uh, some more substantial events, uh, too. Yeah, I was going to say that's what they're doing, the flags. (laughs) Some far more substantial events. Okay. That's just something very visual that I was drawn to. (laughs) Okay. Very nice. (laughs) Well, thank you to your school. Number one ally. You're right. But then what happens after June? Well, the brands would say, the brands after June would just be like, queerness, away, gone. Gone. Who is she? It's just... It's a countdown. It's a countdown to June, and then after June, mm-hmm. it's like everybody hibernates. Mm-hmm. They don't know gay and people. No. Yeah. They don't exist any longer. No. No. They come out in June, so we can buy vodka that is rainbow, and then we just go back into our little gay holes. Nope. Right. <laughs> I think that's the perfect way to describe it. Yeah. You do. Okay. You hibernate in your little gay holes. Little gay holes, and then we come out in June. <laughs> and we come out. Come out in next June. June. Look at yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Makes makes perfect sense. All right. Okay. Sounds good. Wow. So glad we that. talked through that. We had that little chat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. And I um, love our little chats. I do too. We don't have them often enough. Let me tell you. All right. Anyway, on that note, why don't why don't we get into stories? I love that. And my story is extra exciting this week because my subject has yet another connection to the Real Housewives franchise. No way. It just kind of keeps coming back. Yeah, I I swear, I promise. And in consistent fashion has another, has some more names that I have trouble pronouncing. <laughs> Why do you do this to yourself? Uh, there's a lot of I think maybe I just don't know how to pronounce things because it just happens to be every time I come across someone, mm-hmm. I can't pronounce some parts of their story. But regardless, we will power through full steam mm. ahead because this week we're talking about international bisexual activist, spy, the first black sex symbol, and the first black woman buried in France's pantheon, Josephine Baker. <laughs> I did not know so many things. any of those things, but also I love that you're doing another spy story. Again, so so Real Housewives connections, mm-hmm. spy, secret spies, secret spies. L- lest we forget. Secret spies. Things you can't pronounce. And things I can't pronounce seem to be my, that's my niche. That's my sweet spot right there. And they just find me. It's meant to be. So sources I used for this week's episode include a Them article entitled Remembering Josephine Baker by Alyssa Goodman, another Them article entitled Queer Icon Josephine Baker by James Factora, the Queer Portraits and History bio dedicated to Josephine Baker, an article entitled Josephine Baker by Awa Gue for Afropunk, and then an article entitled Highlighting Black and LGBTQ plus Pioneers, Josephine Baker by Victoria Clarice Anderson for Believe Out Loud. All right. 
Are we ready? I I primed you with all the list of things that she does. Are we yeah, ready? you've like really built it up. So she better not it, disappoint. It will not disappoint. It won't. So Josephine was born in St. Louis in 1906. Her maiden name was Josephine McDonald. She was kind of immediately thrown into this really, really harsh world. Her parents were on the vaudeville circuit and were not very present in her life, kind of to say the least. And I say parents, really there's only a record of her mother even. And because of this, she grew up poor and oftentimes unhoused and attempted to find work on traveling performance and vaudeville circuits, but kind of never really gained any prominence. And she was still really, really young. At the time she was eight, she was forced to work as a domestic laborer for wealthy white people around St. Louis. And it was in these homes that she experienced harrowing physical and sexual abuse at the hands of the people whose home she was working in. And she was even married briefly at age 13 to Willie Wells. Mm -mm. And it was kind of on the order of her mother to dispel rumors of a, quote, sexual affair with a 50-year-old man. What? So there was this rumor that this 13-year-old was being promiscuous with a 50-year-old man, which of course we know that's not at all what was going on. And so in order to kind of make people recognize her purity, I guess, her mom was like, it's cool, we'll just make you a child's bride. And then it'll clear everything up. So that was her literal childhood. Like she's 13 Mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah. So just already very difficult things to have to experience, especially a lot of them relating to kind of her sexuality and things like that. After this year-long marriage at age 13, Josephine was recruited into a chorus line role in St. Louis, where she began touring the vaudeville circuit and became the protege and also lover of Clara Smith, who was a famous blues singer. Mm. We just kind of had this brief indication that she has intimate relationships with women at this point clara's still far older than her mm-hmm. likely josephine is still in a, a fairly vulnerable position but it's definitely not the last encounter that she has with women soon after josephine packed up and headed to new york city at age 15 now in 1921 which was during the harlem renaissance She performed in Shuffle Along, which was one of the first all-Black musicals on Broadway. Here, again, aged 15, Josephine meets and marries Will Baker and keeps his last name. So that's how we get Josephine Baker. And they were married for five years. At 15? Yeah. Imagine having two marriages by the time you're 20 years old. No. Oh my god. Yeah. So, although this seemed more an autonomous choice mm-hmm. being married at this age i don't really know but still at 15 the, the typical age of 15 yeah yeah at 15 you're not making any choices that are gonna be like you don't have enough self-awareness and perception of the world around you to really be making choices that are beneficial to you and you know safe for you so no like even if it was autonomous that's oh god one hell of a choice that there was Definitely. no one to, you know. And yeah. one thing I will say too, in all my research of her, something really stuck out to me that, as we'll talk about later, she had quite a few marriages and relationships, both with men and women. But one thing that stuck out was that people often were like, once she was an adult and was able to be in a position to make some of those choices for herself, that anytime she felt a relationship was unfulfilling, 
and it wasn't a forced relationship, she was very quick to get out of it. Like mm-hmm. she never really needed the company. She never really needed the emotional Security. or other support right provided by a relationship so it seemed as she aged relationships were fully her choice and it kind of shows in that you know once it wasn't working out she left these men and was like okay next mm-hmm. we'll try it again mm-hmm. so again kind of going back to new york age 15, Josephine reports having quite a similar experience to one of our previous subjects, James Baldwin, who was coming of age in New York City around the same time, if um, you remember from that episode. Throughout her still short life, Josephine experienced intense racism, which kept her from success within the U.S. vaudeville circuit, subjected her to living in those abusive conditions, and generally took a toll on her emotionally. And it just was something that was really difficult for her to live day in and day out. Meanwhile, France was having sort of this condescending and patronizing love affair with Black culture, and though it was probably a little yucky reading about it, what they were doing, and their kind of like tokenizing obsession with Blackness, many Black Americans, including James Baldwin, sought refuge and became American expats in Paris. And Josephine kind of got that same urge. She got the memo about Paris at the time, and she quickly followed suit. She packed up, she revoked her American citizenship, and moved to France in 1925 at age 19. And so things really start to turn around in France for Josephine, which is, again, really difficult to even imagine at 19. You're just going to pick up and move to a different country and just hope for the best. Yeah. But it kind of worked out because Josephine saw almost immediate success as a performer in Paris with the help of her newest lover and fellow American expat jazz star Ada Smith, a.k.a. Bricktop. I think maybe we might we might talk about her in another episode, but that's a whole different story about about Bricktop. Well, I love her nickname. I know, and I just want to know where it came from. Like, I just yeah. I, What's the her name story? came up a few times. Yeah, in in passing, it's kind of like uh, non Earl Harrell. It's kind of like non Earl. Like, where did this come from? Yeah. How did how did this happen? And then Josephine's early performances and what she kind of became most famous for, at least at the time, would most aptly be considered burlesque. Her most famous dance was at, oh, Jared, I don't know how to pronounce this word. You can the do fo- The Foley Ber- Bergere, oh. Bergere. Yeah, so the Foley Bergere is a place where Barbette performed. <gasps> Okay, so yeah. it's like a fam. It's like a yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. It's a famous so that, performance so there, venue. Great. So I sort of got it right. So her most famous dance was here, and it was known as this legendary banana dance, or I don't know how to pronounce this one either. Dance sauvage, sauvage, which mm. which means which translates to wild dance. Okay. Again, a little. Uh, just a little interesting to me maybe a red flag but the dance itself and the performance featured a skirt made only of underwear similar to like a bikini bottom with 16 bananas strung around it and mm-hmm. and a brazier my friend yeah i purposely picked that word i could have just said brazier. bra she's like a bathing suit top but it's a brazier she became known as the black pearl across france with what Pablo Picasso called, quote, a smile to end all smiles. 
And the rest of that Pablo Picasso quote about Josephine feels like a little racist. Well, I was going to say the black pearl. Is that, was that a race thing? Uh, Yeah, there were a Mm. lot of, in my research, they were like, this is what Josephine was called throughout France at the time. And I was like, hmm, Mm -hmm. that it, it all felt a little strange. And I think it does lend itself to the success that a lot of Black, specifically Americans, had in France at the time was certainly due to their talent, but Mm -hmm. also there was definitely a very tokenizing and like ostracizing almost obsession with Mm -hmm. Black culture in France at the time. So both James Baldwin and Josephine Baker, who are two people that I'm a little more familiar with now from the podcast, definitely were revered in France and and were very successful there. But I think a lot of factors went into their success. And that's the part that feels a little Mm. weird. Very similar to a lot of Yone Noguchi's story of there were elements to it that feel wrong. Mm -hmm. And so definitely that. But essentially, people were captivated by Josephine. And like I said, part of that was... Francis sort of like exoticizing her. And part of it was because she was just a genuinely captivating performer to be in the presence of. A a person similar to Barbette, like people were just enamored watching the performances. Mm -hmm. Lots of lots of joie de vivre, as they say. They do. I'm saying so good, as the French would say. I can just move to France now. Okay. I think I think I'm getting better, at least with French, Mm -hmm. because there's been a lot of French. Yeah, yeah, week by week, you're definitely duolinguing, yeah, picking it up. I am, Mm -hmm. I am. Also, fun fact, she had a pet cheetah named Chiquita that would make guest appearances in her performances. Okay, sorry, one, that is so cool. What? Where do you get a cheetah? Two, my mom growing up, sidebar, my grandparents always had like exotic animals or like just like kind of like unusual pets. They had a monkey named Chiquita when my mom was growing up as a pet. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder what- Where did they live? In New Jersey. That's so fascinating. But what about the name- I think it's such a cute Chiquita. name. Chiquita. And also the banana we, brand, Chiquita. The bananas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. I don't know when so the, that brand got started. Also, I don't think it has any connection to France. No, but I but I think it's just ironic. Like, monkeys and bananas seem to be, like, a thing that go together. Sure. Like, PB&J. And then um, Chiquita the cheetah and the banana dance aspect. Yes, you're right. I I also think it, it might be just because it sounds like a cute name, too. Sure. Like, Chiqui- sure. Cheetah the Chiquita. No, Chiquita the cheetah. Other way around. But so cute anyway. There's lots of pictures of them together. And Chiquita looks lovely. At this time, Josephine turned her burlesque fame into kind of this larger entertainment career, becoming a singer. And in the 1930s, she was famous for her song, More French. It's I Have Two Loves. How would you pronounce I Have Two Loves, Jared? J'ai deux amours or something like that? That's it. That's right. Okay. Uh, okay. (laughs) So that's the song. Okay. That's what song she was most famous for, I Have Two Loves, which presumably was in reference to her home country, America, and France. Although, also maybe relevant, as I'm saying it out loud, that she um, also happened to love men and women. So interesting little connection there. That's speculation on my part. 
She was also the first black woman to star on film in the movie Zeus. She's a mogul now, you know, Mm -hmm. she's like an entertainment powerhouse in Paris. In 1937, she marries Jean Lyon. It's just Jean Lyon and became a French citizen. But her relationships with women were not finished when the two were married. It is rumored that she spent intimate time with Frida Kahlo and Colette, some of the more famous among her various female lovers, and have made an appearance on the show. There is no evidence to suggest she was openly bisexual at the time, though her affairs with women also weren't completely a secret. The people she surrounded herself with, probably because many of them were artists, were likely supportive of these relationships. That's why it wasn't so much a secret. But publicly, this kind of fluidity with her sexuality and not really having as much of a label for it was not widely accepted. So that's probably why publicly she never really had as much of a label. But Mm -hmm. if you look her up now, she's always identified as being a bisexual sort of entertainer. Also, now she was a French citizen by marriage. Josephine proved her worth to France even further by spying for the French resistance during World War II. So more secret spies, and she's already, she's done so much. I can't even believe this is the same person. So her status as an entertainer actually was what allowed her to act as a spy. She had access to high-ranking German officials at these parties and so she would pin messages to her underwear or write them in invisible ink on her sheet music and smuggle those messages to the French resistance like about what these German officials were kind of chatting about at these parties. She became a sub-lieutenant in the Women's Auxiliary of France and also hid Jewish refugees in her home like her kind of like chateau compound. She hid refugees there. For all of this work, she was given a medal from the French government, which is just like astounding. Absolutely. It, do, it almost seems not enough to just be like, here's no. a medal for all of the things no. that you did, you badass. But I mean, like one like brave and um, just like noble thing after thing. Yeah, just like constantly. It, at this point, nothing was surprising in my research because I was yeah. like, wow, she just really did it all. Right, she's on, like, season three or four of her life, but, like, the plot is just, like, still so wild that you don't even know what's going to happen next. Like, she's just Still going. going. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a Shonda Rhimes piece. We're Mm -hmm. in, like, a K-drama. Like, it's just, it keeps going. By the 1950s, after fighting racism, anti-Semitism, and, like, literal Nazis. Like, can't emphasize that enough. The Nazis. Yes, yeah. She was looking she was like okay let's settle down and perform in the u.s again but she publicly came out before going on tour in the u.s saying she would not perform at segregated venues and so she kind of didn't end up even touring that much in the u.s and only performed in her hometown of st louis in 1952 after years of kind of pushback and saying that she wouldn't perform in certain venues In 1952, when asked about all of this and her American tour, Josephine is quoted saying, A year ago, when I decided to come to North America, I had put it in my contract that I would not appear in any city where my people could not come see me. And at each time that there has been an approach to my coming to St. Louis, I have always refused. I have had several fantastic offers in the first-class theaters and nightclubs, but when the question arrived about my people coming to see me, immediately there was a silence. 
so she was firm in that and a lot so she didn't perform that much in America which of course is sad because that's where she like that's where she grew up and and that was her home originally and even people who wanted her to perform were like sorry you want us to like integrate our venues no we're not gonna do that and so she was like okay well then I'm not going to come here so yeah, yeah. okay then right. <laughs> I her won't, morals like... are so much stronger than her will to perform or her right. desire to perform like it's yeah right at this time, too, at kind of like the height of the Red Scare, she was accused of being a communist, which mm. kind of at this point in our history journey, I'm realizing that people who were accused of being communists at this time were actually just like cool. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> just like queer people that were just like yeah doing their thing. and They were just like being chill and people were like, you must be a communist, I guess. Right. I don't know. It was an excuse. So because of her marriage to um, Jean Lyon and her French citizenship, she never actually did have to return to the U.S. to live as a citizen because now, like, France was her home. And she was welcomed there with open arms. She did, however, speak at the March on Washington in 1963 about the racism she experienced growing up in America and as a staunch advocate for civil rights. She was the only Black woman to address the crowd that day, which I didn't know. She said, quote, I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents and much more, but I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee, and that made me mad. And when I get mad, you know that I open my big mouth, and then look out, because when Josephine opens her mouth, they hear it all over the world. Oh, I love that. I know, which is true. Like, just being unapologetic, and she could be too. She was like, yeah, there. I now live in a place where I feel accepted and had Mm -hmm. had success and all of these things. And I come back here and I don't know what you all are doing, but. Right. And like granted, she was experiencing racism in varying degrees, no matter where she was. But the fact that the place where she was born and like the place that originally was home to her was so exclusive and so against just her existence is like she has no reason to have any allegiance she has like not she knows what she should be treated like and there's no reason to like hold back anymore you know she's not a u.s citizen like she could say what she wanted to say without any repercussions you know to fight discriminatory practices and laws and you know yeah and i think it really just goes to demonstrate what a fantastic and like i think fierce person she was and passionate person to she had no obligation to come Mm -hmm. back to the place that for the time she was here in america treated her so poorly Mm -hmm. and like never there there was not as much potential here as there was once she moved here. But she still felt like civil rights in America were such an important movement at the time and becoming part of it and becoming involved in it was such a worthy cause that she would risk all of those things coming back here and didn't have to at all. Right. Upon her final return to France in 1953, so now she's just kind of in France, she and her newest husband, Joe Boyan, like a Boyan, Boyan cube, cube, adopted 12 children, whoa. all of different races. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Wow, sorry, that shocked me. 12? Sorry. She, she's like, 12 okay, lose children. the last guy, 
get a new husband, the founder of the Bouillon Cube, (laughs) Joe Bouillon of the Bouillon Cube Joe Bouillon. (laughs) And 12 children. Let's like. And 12 children. Wow. Sorry. Fully committed. Yeah. Sorry. I guess, like I said, nothing shocks me anymore, but I guess I should have left space. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. A little breather room. No, go on. So, so her and Joe adopted these 12 children. They were all of different races and ethnicities. And the family was known as the Rainbow Tribe and considered by Josephine to be part of her civil rights activism. She mm-hmm. wanted to raise a family that, you know, regardless of race or ethnicity or nationality or anything would be a family and would be able to live together and love one another. Many people were kind of shocked by this with both at the time and still currently with some historians recalling in a 2014 article from The Telegraph, quote, no one had seen a black woman adopt a white child before. No one had seen a black woman adopt 12 children or raise them in a castle or house them in a theme park or use them in advertisements or portray them as soldiers in a struggle for justice. Her family, like all of her monumental life before this, was certainly unconventional, but full of that love that she wanted. One of her children was Jean-Claude Baker, who made a guest appearance on The Real Housewives of New York. So, whoa, wild how that happens. (laughs) Josephine Baker was performing significantly less by the 1960s and unfortunately lost her home while supporting her 12 children, her family. It was Grace Kelly, Princess of Monaco, who actually offered the family a home to stay in, in Monaco. Wow. Just like wild. A lot of name dropping in this story, but also just like what? Just a wild turn of events. Just the Princess of Monaco. Just seeing just if you classic. want to crash on her couch. Yeah. Yeah. You and your 12 like, children. Like, why not? Yeah, why not? Right. Because she could. Because she could. She yeah. absolutely could. So I also read in an article, which I think is a little funny, that it was to- it was talking about Angelina Jolie's, I was, all of mm-hmm. her kids, and it was like, oh, you've been Bakered or something like that? Like, you've been Josephine Bakered? Because this was kind of like the first yeah. person, I think, especially of celebrity, to sort of adopt this right. many children in the same way. And in, yeah, in a public, in the public eye. Right, right. Yeah. And sort of, like, with this social justice mission, too. I mean, I right. don't know that much about, like, Angelina Jolie. But I know, like, there was that intention behind Josephine's. Not not right. to say that it was negative in any way, but there was certainly that intention behind her rainbow tribe. Right. Celebrating 50 years of entertaining in France, Josephine Baker took the stage for a sold-out show in Paris in 1975, where the applause would make it seem like it was her heyday, despite being nearly 70 years old. The night after this final show, Josephine passed away from a cerebral hemorrhage. Paris's streets were flooded with sympathetic mourners of the icon. Josephine became the sixth woman and the first black woman who was laid to rest in France's Pantheon, resting beside Victor Hugo, Marie Curie, and other monumental French figures. She is quoted saying in 1952, quote, people are dying so that you will be able to live in peace, try to understand and love each other before it's too late. So I am now a firm believer that she certainly did. From her surprising pets to her 12 children and every country she lived in, Josephine carried with her 
fierce activism, positivity, love, and a captivating smile. She always did what she could to make the most of her celebrity, despite the barriers faced by queer women of color. She was one of the first black sex symbols, but she truly embodied what it means to be a lasting icon. Her son, Jean-Claude, is quoted saying, Nobody else performing in Europe during the 1930s moved like she did. And while in this quote he was referring to her early adoption of what we would call voguing, I would argue that still, to this day, nobody has done it like Josephine. Sorry, side note, did you just say voguing? Yeah, voguing. She, like, kind of invented voguing. The dance move? The, like, Madonna, like, voguing? Yeah. Okay. You know I'm talking about voguing today, right? (laughs) No, you're not. I'm, like, literally Are you serious? Yeah. That's wild. I mean, it's meant to be. And that's so weird because I just threw that in as like a, oh, this is a funny little thing that like apparently she was like voguing in 1930. Josephine Baker is one badass woman. And I think your little wrap up that you just said was like perfectly encapsulates just everything, like the perfect summation of who she was as a person. And I'm sure there was so much more of her, but like she accomplished so much for having such a hard life like she really is the definition of perseverance and like she's just someone to look up to and and, an absolute icon i didn't know this much about her but i'm so glad i got to learn all of it yeah she's the type of person that you know Thank you for kind of giving me the opportunity to research about her too, because I didn't really know that much about her, but she's the person that you can see one picture and sort of know she was an icon without ever even knowing this stuff. But like the picture is just the surface. Like you, you, you get that feeling of just like seeing someone that's truly captivating and breathtaking. Mm -hmm. And then you sort of dig into the story a little bit more and it just keeps going. And she just had so much. Mm-hmm. so so much happening and so much in her life and it was all beautiful and super cool to experience long live josephine baker yeah truly I'm trying to think of how to say it in french that's maybe next week well i gotta yeah. practice my french a little yeah. bit for yeah. for the next time and yeah. then we'll we'll come back <laughs> yeah. well thank you for telling me that story yes you're so welcome thanks for listening All right. So I had, I was like trying to think of how to introduce my subject today. And I was going to be like, we're staying in America and whatever. I think let's just get into it because I think it's wild that we have such a strong connection to our topics with like such minimal planning. But this week, I'm going to be talking to you about Willie Ninja, the grandfather of voguing and thus the queer ballroom culture and houses. I I am so excited. I genuinely didn't even know who you were doing this week. I didn't check. And so it really is just such a coincidence. And so please tell me about this. I can't wait to enlighten you. So real quick, I just want to go over some sources. I used an article called Willie Ninja Voguing Butch Queen by Anna Herrera for OutHistory.org. A New York Times article by Lola Uganake with a title that kind of gives away the ending of my story, um, so it'll be in the show notes. The National Black Justice Coalition profile on Willie Ninja. Willie Ninja by Terry Monaghan for The Guardian. How 19th century drag balls evolved into house balls, 
Birthplace of Voguing by Thad Morgan for History.com and Willie Ninja's Wikipedia page. So William Roscoe Leak is born on April 12, 1961 at the Long Island Jewish Medical Center in New Hyde Park, New York. He grows up in Flushing, a New York City neighborhood in the borough of Queens. This is also famously where Fran Fine from The Nanny is from. <laughs> Not much is known or documented about Willie's childhood. It's stated in a few sources that he has sort of an undistinguished school career, so it kind of seems like he's just like an average queer boy growing up in the city. Willie, who will never officially come out to his mother, Esther, describes her as very accepting of his sexuality and that she's actually the one who confronts him about it, classically claiming, you know, a mother always knows. And in kind of a shocking twist from what we're used to hearing about in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, especially with queer people of color, Esther affirms Willie's sexuality, confirming she will love him no matter what. Not only does she foster in him an acceptance of his sexuality, but she also nurtures his interest in dancing, which he begins doing around the age of seven. He's completely self-taught, but his mother does bring him to the ballet and to the Apollo Theater to see other dance performances, so he's learning dance sort of by proxy. He's watching and then later recreating. After high school, Willie tries his hand at college, but drops out and instead moves to Greenwich Village in the late 70s and enrolls in beauty school. While in Greenwich Village, Willie joins the young gay scene that heavily expresses itself through dance. By the early 1980s, Willie forms a dance group with a few friends who call themselves the Video Pretenders, and they would go to clubs, mimicking the dance moves in the music videos playing on the screens. But during these outings, a light bulb sort of goes off above Willie's head, who decides that they should create choreography of their own. I mean, it makes sense. Like, if if your whole life you were expressing dance as just a recreation of moves that you've seen, I guess it kind of is sort of a new thought to be like, hey, I could just do that myself. Also, as a a non-dancer... The idea of just like how how people just like come up with original things is absolutely wild to me. So Willie and his dance group would go to popular queer hangout spots such as Christopher Street Pier and Washington Square Park and just sort of mess around with dancing and like have fun and not really take themselves too seriously. They would practice voguing a highly stylized dance with angular body movements, exaggerated model poses as seen in the magazine Vogue, and intricate mime-like choreography that evolved out of the Harlem ballroom scene in the 1960s. And I actually want to quickly talk about that. The Harlem ballroom scene is sort of a subculture that begins before and during the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, which enforced the idea through quote-unquote radical advancement in literature, arts, and music that aspects like gender and sexuality can be fluid and intersecting. The Hamilton Lodge number 710 in Harlem would host highly illegal, queer, cross-dressing masquerades dating back to the late 19th century, so around the Civil War era, which experiences severe backlash from police during the Depression and Prohibition. The main attraction at these balls were female impressionists, showing off their gowns and their bodies to a panel of judges in a typical pageant fashion. While the drag balls are interracial, prejudice is majorly still at play, kind of in the history of balls, with mainly white judges favoring Eurocentric features. 
And it isn't until 69 years after the first ball that a black contestant takes home the top prize for the very first time. Out History notes that, quote, although attended equally by black and white audiences, black queens were expected to whiten up their faces if they wanted a chance at winning a title. In 1967, during the Miss All-America Camp Beauty pageant, a pageant for drag queens, a white contestant, Miss Philadelphia, takes home the crown, which is another frustrating loss to the Black and Latin communities. Miss Manhattan, Crystal LaBeja, calls out the judges for discriminating against non-white contestants and claims that the pageant is rigged. After this, Crystal refuses to participate in other drag pageants, but is persuaded by another drag queen to create and promote her own ball. Liking this idea, she agrees, and in 1972, the House of Labasia, the first ever ballroom house, is born as a promotional gimmick with Crystal as the mother. I love this. It's like Hogwarts houses, but so much better. A house is like a chosen family or a team, so similar to the Hogwarts houses, just created by someone less transphobic yeah very much so and each house is led by a house mother or father who guides and grooms their children for the world that's really wholesome and so members of a house commonly share a last name like that of a biologically related family usually taking the surname of the house originator popular houses include the house of Balenciaga, the house of dupree the house of labasia the House of Mugler, and the House of Extravaganza. And remember, during this time, high rates of queer kids of color are being rejected by their families and thrown out. So these houses provide an extended social family and support system that helps these kids navigate racism, homophobia, transphobia, and classism, which are all serious issues that they face on a daily in New York City. And so it gives them a safe space to validate their identities and express themselves creatively. And so Crystal creates this new house ballroom style, which is designed exclusively for Black and Latine, trans, queer, and gay people, and it's a success. As noted in the History.com article, quote, instead of the pageant style of competition in drag balls, house balls held competitions between houses by categories. Categories range from face, meaning the judging of a house member's beauty, to body, which is the appreciation of a house member's curves, to runway, to performances, including Vogue, which is actually originally called Pop, Dip, and Spin, before the 1990 Madonna song brought the stylized dance to world-famous level recognition. Judges would then commonly score participants on a scale of 1 to 10, and the highest rated would then win the category, and the family with the most trophies would then essentially boost their house in the hierarchy of the drag ball scene. And when you hear the phrase like tens, tens, tens across the board, this comes from the judging in ballroom culture. I am like obsessed with this. I genuinely think after this, I'm going to have to start that TV show. Oh, if episode one of Pose is so good. Like the first scene from the beginning, it's my mouth was like, dropped open it like i loved i just loved the whole concept of it so while some people use these balls and this culture to perfect their modeling or their singing skills willie makes his debut in the ballroom scene and really perfects his dance form he's influenced by hieroglyphics young michael jackson fred astaire olympic gymnasts and martial arts 
So very a wide range of influences. But when he hits the scene, he takes on the last name Ninja, likely for the reason that he's influenced by martial arts. Mm-hmm. Through competing in the ballroom, though, Willie begins to redefine his swaggering runway walk and voguing, providing clean, sharp dance moves to, quote-unquote, kill his competition, so another possible origin for his surname. He would later begin adding contortionist arm and leg positions, further expanding the dance and cementing his legacy to revolutionizing the skill. And I think it's also really interesting to note that Willie is about six foot three, so he, he and he has really broad shoulders. So when he vogues and he goes into these like contortionist moves, he's it's like almost unreal. Like the sight of it right. is just so wild that he's able to do the things that he's able to do. Willie rises through the ranks and becomes a prominent figure in the Harlem drag ball scene by the 1980s, and in 1982, Willie founds the House of Ninja, which would quickly become famous for its dancers. And the general requirements to start a house are to have either been a part of a house yourself or to win three grand prizes at the balls, neither of which Willie has done, but in Willie fashion, he just does it anyway. And very much... Like Josephine Baker, he was kind of like, I'm doing it and like no one's going to stop me. Like I'm doing it because I want to do it. So can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. Which I love that also. What a a fairly arbitrary set of rules. But anyway, Mm -hmm. um, how do you decide? Like, is there a decision making process for what house you want to be a part of? Is it like sorority rushing? Are you going to talk about that? No. What is it like? I, I mean, obviously, I am not part of the ballroom scene, and I can only really say, um, like, what I know from my minimal research on houses and Ryan mm-hmm. Murphy's pose, which maybe also is not the most, like, accurate representation. <laughs> most accurate. Um, but it, if, it seems like people would express interest in houses, and... Either they would express interest in a house or the house mother or father would kind of take them under their wing and like over the course of time, like proving their commitment and contribution to the family, then they would kind of be like brought in officially to the family. Okay. Um, So it kind of, it it more seems like you're chosen by the family. No, it, it quite literally to me, from my understanding of what sorority rushing sounds like, sounds like they sororities maybe st- maybe stole some things. Um, that, it feels very similar. But, okay. um That was just interesting. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know how it um, how it worked. I'm yeah, I'm like I'm I'm enthralled by this. So one little tidbit that I kind of love imagining is that Willie apparently teaches his children voguing and dancing late into the night on old Christopher street pier and at underground clubs. So he's just like taking his house children and like going and voguing in public. And like, they're kind of just like showing up and doing these things like coming out of nowhere, which is also kind of another origin for the name Ninja. They just like come out of nowhere and are just like on the scene and are prominent and like people know who they are. Around this time as well, near the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, Willie is incredibly instrumental in getting the ballroom scene to discuss HIV-AIDS prevention during a time when it wasn't really being talked about in the gay community. Social stigma and anxiety about contracting it really begins to take hold of the ballroom scene at large, so Willie begins to split his time between performing and community engagement. 
Willie's fame leaks out of the ballroom scene and into New York City, though. Many people know Willie when they see him, but even those that don't still turn their heads to get a look at this tall man usually wearing these out-of-the-box ensembles, such as a coat made of braided synthetic hair or a jacket with a skirt and Doc Martens. Like, his entire physical presentation is this androgynous, like, gender fuck expression. Mm -hmm. The self-described Butch Queen is also part of the legendary yet controversial documentary Paris is Burning, being featured after filmmaker Jenny Livingston heard about Willie from other voguers in Washington Square Park. The film, which is released in 1990, launches Willie and his voguing further into stardom. Willie's popularity lands him in a featured dancer role in Malcolm McLaren's 1989 Deep in Vogue music video, as well as many others. And if you're following this timeline, you may be thinking, okay, well, Paris is Burning came out in 1990, but Willie was in this 1989 music video. How? So the documentary is unreleased, but Malcolm McLaren acquires a VHS tape and requests permission to sample the voguing section from the film. Willie even makes a trip to London to record vocals on the track as well, and the song peaks at number one on Billboard's 1989 U.S. Dance Club Songs chart. And through this song and this music video that Willie's a part of, Willie develops a friendship with Malcolm McLaren, who then takes Willie and an ensemble of ninja family dancers around the European fashion houses, meaning designer brands like Chanel, Louis Vuitton, Dior, where the group makes a big impact on the designers. As McLaren would later describe, to him, Willie didn't just wear the clothes, but he acted them with a passion that was rare in the fashion industry. And from here, Willie goes on to model in runway shows for Chanel, Jean-Paul Gaultier, Mugler, and Karl Lagerfeld. In the late 80s and into the 90s, Willie takes voguing across Europe and throughout Japan, teaching classes and instructing thousands of students. And this was one of Willie's dreams, to travel the world. So through this art form, he's able to accomplish something he thought was never possible. Also around this time, the ballroom scene begins to die down a little bit, and so Willie stops being heavily involved, but he never fully loses touch. He releases some of his own music and stars in more music videos, including two for Janet Jackson. He provides instruction to Paris Hilton and a young Naomi Campbell, giving tips on perfecting their walks. And obviously not at the same time, Naomi Campbell came way before Paris Hilton, but two (laughs) really big stars. He teaches female models grace and poise, helping them situate themselves in an upper echelon of modeling. Willie is a guest on talk shows like The Joan Rivers Show and Jimmy Kimmel Live. There's one clip from his interview with Jimmy Kimmel where he busts out this Vogue combination that's just so fascinating to watch, and I'm going to try to put it on our Instagram, at Historically Really, without getting sued. But it really just shows in a brief amount of time how talented he really is. In 2003, Willie is diagnosed with HIV, but continues working to support his mother, Esther, who at this point has Parkinson's and uses a wheelchair while not being able to afford healthcare himself. A year later, Willie takes all of his knowledge and expertise and opens EON, or the Elements of Ninja, a modeling agency. And I attempted to look up the agency to see who they represented or like where they were. Mm -hmm. But all that came up was a 1982 Hong Kong martial arts movie. So it doesn't seem like there's much existing 
about this modeling agency anymore. And it's written that Willie continues to mentor up-and-coming dancers and models until he loses his sight. And in September of 2006, Willie passes away from AIDS-related heart failure in New York City at the age of 45. But even in his death, Willie has continued to inspire many artists and DJs. He's a central figure in queer studies, gender studies, and performance studies. He's remembered by many for his contributions to dance and advocacy of the ballroom community and those who have been impacted by HIV and AIDS. And that is kind of the story of Willie Ninja, the grandfather of Vogue. Wow. I am, I, I, like I said, didn't even know you were doing this topic and knew virtually nothing about it. And I was so fascinated by, by all of it. And so I appreciate you doing such extensive research to kind of talk about that sort of overview of Willie's life. But he sounds so impactful, um, not yeah. only, I think, to the specific work and things he did, but it's it seems like there are such lasting impacts of of what he contributed to to the culture. It's interesting because there's actually not a lot written about Willie online. Like all of the articles, so the New York Times article was about his death, but all of the articles online written about him basically are like he had like he grew up in 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 Flushing and he started dancing at 7 and by the mid 1980s he was voguing. Like there's just really not a lot right. of like specific details about him and his life and like they didn't talk about any partners he had or they didn't talk about like like they briefly mentioned his mom but it there it's just so everything is so vague mm-hmm. and doesn't really focus on Willie as a person much outside of voguing and Right. And what he contributed, which was obviously very significant and has had lasting impacts. But it's just surprising that there isn't more documented about this person. Right. And, you know, he lived a short life, but he still did so much right. in his life. You know, truthfully, when you said he had passed away at 45, because of all of the things that he did, I was actually shocked. Right. And saddened by how young he was because... It seemed like, and maybe it's one of those things that to uh, to a few people, the work that you contributed means the world rather than it being, you know, a significant amount of notoriety and fame, though I really think he should have more of that. Absolutely. But it sounds like in you describing everything that even to the specific people that he was able to care for throughout his time within like the ballroom scene and Mm -hmm. within the houses he was a part of or the one that he created, he was able to have that significance on those people, which I think is probably the most important. Yeah, exactly. Everything that was written about him definitely made it seem like he was just this bright light that cared about mm-hmm. people and cared about helping people and wanted to be there for people. And like, it just seemed like he was a provider. There are like accounts of him, like walking up to people in dance clubs 
when people are dancing and him being like, you're so fierce, like, you, you know, just like gassing people up and just being like always right. positive and always just being a part of everything and being active and being there and being right. present and just having such like an, an affinity for life. Like he truly just seemed like he gave so much and could have given so much more if he only right. had more time. But it, it was truly like everything he did was impactful even if it was just to a few people, there was nothing that he did that didn't have a purpose and a meaning and a lasting impression. And I mean, the ballroom scene is very much still alive and active today. It is very different. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, one of my favorite TikTok accounts is best of Vogue and they just post Mm -hmm. like all of these really cool voguing videos and like people competing and like all of these just like, amazing voguers and like just seeing what they do and how they kind of like improvise and do all these moves like it is still such a culturally important aspect Mm -hmm. to especially queer people of color and in new york that scene is still happening and his legacy very much still lives on to this day and i think that's what's so interesting and and shocking when you tell these stories is so much of it you still see and interact with and know about now and that I didn't know about him in particular and so you do definitely see those kind of ripples to this day and even as a person you know like not growing up surrounded by those things at all I still can see the origins of all of it now and so I think that part's really cool to be able to know a little bit more about where this all came from yeah absolutely fun stuff thanks for sharing yeah thank you willie ninja for your life and your legacy thank you josephine baker for your very similar life and legacy all the cool kids are voguing i guess so it was meant to be it was meant to be Thanks for tuning in to episode 13 of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about voguing. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes even taking care of a pet cheetah a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. To see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at Historically Really. And make sure to send us your personal stories at historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.